I've heard preachers say through the years, and it always gets a hearty amen, this phrase. You shouldn't be so heavenly minded, you are of no earthly good. Now I would submit to you that it's impossible to be too heavenly minded. The Bible commands us, we're going to study the command of Scripture today, to set our mind on things above. And a statement like that, that you can be too heavenly minded to be of any earthly good, reduces this command to seem as if it's just spiritual daydreaming. That to set your mind on things above means you're just kind of thinking about heavenly things, your head's in the clouds, and you're not really making a difference in this world. That's not what the command to set your mind on things above means at all. That is a complete misunderstanding of what Paul is saying in Colossians chapter 3. The command to set your mind on things above is not spiritual daydreaming. It is an intentional strategy to let the values of the kingdom and the king influence our day-to-day life. An intentional strategy to let the values of the kingdom and the king influence our day-to-day life. So keeping that in mind, turn with me to Colossians. Colossians chapter 3. We're going to begin reading in verse 1. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. We studied verses 1 through 4 last week, and we're going to make some more uh, statements on these verses this week as well. If you're physically able this morning, I'm going to ask you to stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. Colossians chapter 3, verse 1. The Bible says, If then you have been raised with Christ, seek the things that are above, where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. Set your minds on things that are above, not on things that are on earth. For you have died. And your life is hidden with Christ in God. When Christ, who is your life, appears, then you also will appear with Him in glory. Let's pray together. Father, we come to you in Jesus' name. And we come to this moment with a sense of expectancy. Lord, we can't wait to see how you're going to use your word in our lives today. I pray that you would speak to us with power as you take your word and apply it to our hearts with your Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit of God, I pray that you would anoint me as I preach this message. And I pray that you would anoint the hearers, that they might might receive your truth and apply it and obey it for the glory of your great name. So Lord, just magnify yourself in our midst today. We love you, we praise you, we worship you. We thank you, God, that you are faithful. And I ask that you would establish my steps today in your word, in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Verses 1 through 4 of chapter 3 in Colossians are transition verses. I believe they're a transition from chapter 2 to uh, some specifics in chapter 3. Now, the major theme of Colossians chapter 2 is found in verses 6 and 7. Look what it says. Therefore, as you receive Christ Jesus the Lord, so walk in Him, rooted and built up in Him, established in the faith, just as you were taught. What Paul is saying there to the church in Colossae in the first century is this. 
Now that you've encountered Christ as Lord and Savior, now that you've been established in Him, walk in Him, grow in Him, mature in Christ. Now that you've received Him as Lord and Savior, let Him change you on a daily basis. And in chapter 3, Paul begins to deal with some specifics. In the coming weeks, we're going to talk about money and materialism and morality and marriage and all these different issues, specific areas in which the gospel ought to affect our lives. But before Paul gets to the specifics in chapter 3, he gives us these transition verses 1 through 4 where he lays down two foundations for spiritual maturity, for spiritual growth. We talked about this last week. We said that the two foundations for spiritual growth are, number one, we need to understand our position in Christ. Last week we talked about our past, our present, our future in union with Christ, what it means to know Christ, the, the implications for our life. We need to understand that. And we also said last week that if we're going to grow spiritually, we need to establish the right priorities in life. We said that Jesus should have our heart's affection, our will's allegiance, and our mind's attention. And I introduced to you the command found there in chapter 2, where Paul writes, set your minds on things that are above. And I told you last week that this week we're going to spend some time practically unpacking that command. What does it look like on a daily basis to set your mind on things above? How do you do that, practically speaking? Well, that's what I want to spend our time together focusing on. But before we get to that, I want to give you a couple of just statements to, to put in your mind and in your heart to help you to understand this. First, we are called to fix our minds on Jesus and His kingdom. We're called, there's a clear command, to fix our minds on Jesus and His kingdom. When it says there, fix your minds or set your minds on things that are above, he's speaking there of the heavenly realm of which Jesus is the center. We know that's what he means because in verse 1 he says, seek the things above where Christ is, seated at the right hand of God. So Jesus Christ is at the right hand of His Father, the place of preeminence, the place of authority, the place of power. He's ruling and reigning over His kingdom. So to set your mind on things above is to set your mind on the kingdom of Christ and the king of the kingdom, Jesus, who is reigning over his domain. That's what it means. We're called to fix our minds on Jesus and his kingdom. And the reason we are to set our minds on things above is because what happens in our minds is of integral importance. Look what it says there in your notes. The way one thinks impacts the way one lives. That's why Paul here is concerned about what's going on in our minds. Set your minds on things above. That that verb, set your minds, means to ponder. It means to let one's mind dwell on something. It, It means to give serious consideration to something. So he's saying, give serious consideration to things that are above. Let your mind ponder things that are above. You might say it like this. Our minds are to be filled up with thoughts of Christ and His kingdom reign. And how we think impacts the way we live. So if we're thinking about Jesus, it's going to show up in Christ-centered living, right? If we're not thinking about Jesus, if we're thinking about the things of this earth, then our, our lives are going to look really worldly. Proverbs says, As a man thinks within himself, so he is. Eventually, what rules your mind will show up in your actions. 
That is a biblical principle. So let's make sure our minds are, are filled up, centered on, focused on, dwelling on Christ and his kingdom reign. But here's the, answer, the question. How do you do that? Practically speaking, how do I set my mind on things above? Well, the sport I loved growing up that I played the most was soccer. And I learned in soccer that you had to have a defensive and an offensive strategy. If you didn't have a defensive strategy, then the other team would score on you all day long and you would lose the game. No way you're going to win if you didn't have a good goalkeeper and a good line of defense. So you had to have a, a defensive strategy in place. But you also needed to have an offensive strategy because no matter how good your goalkeeper was and your defenders were, if you didn't have an offensive strategy, you'd never score and you would never win. So a good soccer team would have a defensive strategy to protect the goal, but also an offensive strategy to score points. That's, that's how soccer works. And it's the same way when it comes to obeying this command. If we're going to set our minds on things above, we need to have a defensive and an offensive strategy to obey this command. So let's talk about the defensive strategy. What does it look like to, to have this kind of thought life, setting your mind on things above? Do we need to be on the defense? Well, we do, because look what Paul says there in verse 2. Set your minds on things that are above, and watch this, not on things that are on earth. That's defense, right? So positively, we've got to have our minds focused on Christ and his kingdom, but in a defensive way, we should not allow the things of the earth to rule the day in our thought life. We should be on the defensive against the things of this earth. Now, God has warned us, that there are some things that steal our focus away from Jesus. And I want to walk with you through three things that we know steal our focus away from the Lord. So we can be aware and be on guard. First of all, the devil. The devil is the enemy of your soul. He wants to destroy you. And he wants to destroy your marriage and your kids and your family and your church. He's a destroyer. And he wages war often on the battlefield of our minds. Turn with me to Ephesians chapter 6, just two books before Colossians. Ephesians chapter 6, look in verse 12. Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Paul writing here says, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. So Paul's saying, our real warfare, our real battle is against Satan and his demons. That's where the attacks are coming from. He says there in verse 13, Therefore, take up the whole armor of God, that you may be able to withstand in the evil day, and having done all, to stand firm. Stand, therefore, having fastened on the belt of truth. Now, truth is something you believe in your mind, right? So he said, if you're going to stand against Satan, you've got to, you've got to know the, the truth. He calls it here the belt of truth. You know, a belt in that day and time uh, held your tunic together, your, your, your battle armor together. And so truth holds everything together in our lives. If you're going to stand against Satan, you've got to know the truth. You've got to know what God says. But look, look what he says. Stand, therefore having fastened on the belt of truth and having put on the breastplate of righteousness. Righteousness is a right standing with God. So he's saying, you need to know God. You need to have a relationship with him so you can stand firm against the devil. Then he says, and shoes for your feet, having put on 
the readiness given by the gospel of peace. You need to know the gospel and be a a gospel-centered person that wants to share the gospel. Then in verse 16, in all circumstances, take up the shield of faith. This is trust in God, with which you can extinguish all the flaming darts of the evil ones. So we know that Satan, our enemy, throws at our lives fiery darts. And I would submit to you that often these fiery darts are aimed directly at our minds. Have you ever had a, just a crazy, ungodly thought go through your mind? Anybody in here? Is it just me? And you think, where did that come from? I was just driving down the road, minding my own business. Or have you ever found yourself trying to pray, and you are distracted within moments of beginning your prayer time? And you can't keep your thoughts focused on on talking to God? Could it be that those things that are happening in our mind are Satan's fiery darts trying to distract us and get us to think on things that are on this earth, not on heavenly things? Satan wants your mind. Because if he can get your mind, it'll show up in your actions and destruction is soon to follow. And so how do you stand against the devil? If you know that he's your enemy, and and you know that he throws fiery darts at your life, at your heart, at your mind, how do you stand against it? How do you defend against the devil? Well, if you look there in your notes, you've got to be vigilant and know the truth. Over in 1 Peter, the Bible says that Satan is like a roaring lion seeking those whom he can devour. And so Peter says we ought to be sober. We ought to be on the alert. We ought to be looking, not letting Satan have his way in our life. We've got to be defensive. We've got to be vigilant. Not just letting him have his way. And we've got to know the truth. The Bible describes Satan as a liar, as a deceiver. And I believe with all my heart that Satan and his demons love to sit on our shoulder and whisper lies in our ear. Because they can get us to believe lies, they've taken our minds off of heavenly things. So how do you combat lies? With the truth. We've got to know the truth and speak the truth to ourselves when Satan throws those fiery lies into our life. So the devil is one of our enemies, and he wants to steal our focus away from Jesus, and he's good at it. He's been doing it for thousands of years. And I believe that Satan and his demons study our lives. They know what distracts us. And so they will do everything they can to get us to fix our minds on the wrong things. So we've got to be vigilant and know the truth. Secondly, the second thing God has warned us about that steals our focus away from Jesus is the flesh. The flesh is the biblical terminology given to our old sin nature. When you were saved, God forgave you for all of your sins. At the moment, you met Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. And God made you a brand new person. We talked about that last week. He made you a brand new creation in Christ. But at that moment of conversion, God did not eradicate your old sin nature. It's still there. It's still there. Now, because of the indwelling spirit, you have power over the sin nature. You can say no to the sin nature, but it's still there. Now, when Jesus comes back to get us, you know what he's going to do? He's going to eradicate our old sin nature. Won't that be glorious? I cannot wait for that day. Because the old Wade is ever-present in my life. And he's always tugging on my sleeve. 
and saying, hey, wait, let's do some things we used to do. Let's talk some ways we used to talk. Let's, let's, let's act some ways we used to act. Let's treat people the way we used to treat people. Hey, wait, let's think the way we used to think. And the flesh is always trying to get you to, to take your focus away from Jesus Christ. And so if that's true, how do we combat it? Well, look what Paul says over in Romans chapter 7. Romans chapter 7, verse 21. Right before Paul says these verses we're about to read, Paul says, you know, I find out that there's some things I want to do. I know they're the right thing to do, but I don't do them. And I know there's some things I shouldn't do, but I do them. Have you ever found yourself there in your spiritual life? There's things I don't want to do, and I find myself doing them. Things I do want to do, and I don't do them. What's going on here? Well, look what Paul says in Romans 7, verse 21. So I find it to be a law that when I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. He's talking about the evil inside of him, his sin nature. For I delight in the law of God in my inner being, but I see in my members, in my body, another law waging war, watch this, against the law of my mind. So where's the battlefield? Between the spirit and the flesh. The mind, Paul says. This battle is taking place in my mind. He says, making me captive to the law of sin that dwells in my members. Wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. So he's saying there, I have this inner struggle between the new me and the old me. It takes place in my mind. And I'm defeated often, but I know that I can have victory. Because of Jesus Christ. So how do we have victory? How do we defend ourselves against the flesh? It's really simple but really profound. You ready? Just say no. The best way to deal with your old sin nature is to tell it no. That's the best way. Your flesh does not like to be told no. You know what fasting is? Fasting is when you tell your flesh no. I'm not going to eat today. I'm just going to drink water and and spend the times I usually eat focusing upon the Lord and praying. And when you make that decision that you're going to spend a day fasting, you cannot believe how the flesh will rear its ugly head and say, no, 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 wait a minute. I need to be fed. Hunger pains start, right? Or when you go on a diet, immediately you start dieting. You can't stop thinking about food, right? Because you're telling your flesh no. Your flesh doesn't like to be told no. This past weekend, my family was in town, my dad and my brother and his family, and uh, you know, we thought there was some bad weather coming in, we thought it was going to be pretty bad, we are going to kind of be iced in or whatnot or snowed in, and so we went to the grocery store for some emergency supplies, and, and my family came back with four gallons of ice cream. If we're going to be snowed in, we've got to have sweets, right? And my, and my, my brother and my dad, they love ice cream, so, so we ate some ice cream, and they left. They went back home. They left about two gallons of ice cream in my, in my freezer. So you know what I've been doing all week? Eating ice cream. And it's there, and I can't stop thinking about it, right? That's the flesh. That, that's what happens. The flesh does not like to be told no. I, I like to run a little bit and exercise, and I found that no matter how good a shape I'm in, the first mile is always awful. I always feel bad on the first mile because the flesh is saying, stop, stop running, this is uncomfortable, let's go sit on the couch. But you see, if you'll tell the flesh no in the power of the Holy Spirit, and you do that consistently, you'll start winning some victories. And it's the same in your thought life. 
if the flesh wants you to dwell on some ungodly things and you say, no, I'm not going there, and you keep doing it and start winning some victories, you will see that you'll win those battles on the battlefield of your mind. Just say no. But there's a third thing that steals our focus away from Jesus. It's the world. The Bible uses the term world to speak of the ungodly system of this world, to speak of the, 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 the messages and the worldviews and the values that are anti-God, that are ungodly. And you and I are bombarded all the time with these ungodly messages, aren't we? Turn to 2 Corinthians chapter 10 with me. 2 Corinthians chapter 10. Look what Paul writes in verse 3. 2 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 3. Paul says, For though we walk in the flesh, in other words, our sin nature is still there. We're still on this earth, our sin nature is still there, trying to pull us in the wrong direction. For though we walk in the flesh, we are not waging war according to the flesh. For the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but have divine power to destroy strongholds. We destroy arguments, and every lofty opinion, these are things that happen in your mind, every lofty opinion raised against the knowledge of God, and take every thought captive to obey Christ. Paul is saying that we are bombarded with, with ungodly messages, ungodly views, ungodly values, ungodly opinions and ideas, and if we don't take those thoughts captive and say, I'm not going there, I'm not believing that, it doesn't line up with the truth. If we don't take those thoughts captive, they will rule the day in our life. So we've got to do warfare. When we're bombarded with with ungodly messages and worldviews, we've got to say, I'm not believing that. That's not what God says. I'm going to cling to the truth. And we've got to be willing to take thoughts captive. That means you deal with them. You don't let them stay in your mind. You don't let them infiltrate your life. So wait, how do you defend yourself against these ungodly messages? It's really simple. You ready? Limit your exposure. Limit your exposure. Defense. Play defense. If there's something that is, that is having its way in your life that is a, a conduit for these ungodly things to get into your heart and mind, then stop it. If TV caused you to fall and stumble and think wrong things and think ungodly thoughts and watch ungodly things, then turn off the TV. Right? If, if internet's a, 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 a big deal for you because it, it gives you privacy to access immoral things, then get some accountability in your life, get a filter on your computer. I mean, take some action. Limit your exposure to those things. I, I told you last week that, that I believe this command to set your mind on things above is harder to obey today than it was 100 years ago. Because of the convenience and, and the technology out there and the privacy that technology affords us, it's oh so easy to get led astray by things of this world. So limit your exposure. I read an article months ago, and it just astounded me. It was a, an article that made the case that there's a, a, a connection, a link, in many people's lives between depression and their Facebook time. And the article said, that they've done some clinical studies on this, the article said 
that, that what happens is people get on Facebook and they start comparing their life to everyone else's. And they see so-and-so having their beach vacation or their Disney World vacation and say, I didn't get to go to Disney World, I didn't get to go to the beach. Uh, or they, 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 they you know, see somebody putting their happy marriage photos on there. And say, my, my marriage isn't happy. Or perfect picture of their kids. And, you know, I, I can't get my kids to smile for a picture. And, and, and they're comparing their life against everyone else's lives. And, by the way, did you know that what people put on Facebook is, is their greatest hits? Right? I mean, they're going to put not just any picture. They're going to put the best picture on there. It's the greatest hits, right? So for us to compare our lives against Facebook world is, is silly, but it's happening. And people let their minds get filled up with envy and jealousy and depression because of what other people are putting on social media sites. So listen to me. If, that, if that's an issue with you, something like that, delete your Facebook account. I promise you the sun will come up tomorrow. And the world will continue on without you on Facebook. I promise you it will. People will barely notice you're not on Facebook anymore if they notice at all. It can be a tool to communicate with people. I understand that. But, but listen, don't let your life be filled with ungodly stuff because you expose yourself so much to something like social media. If you start thinking, I wonder how my old flame is doing these days, that's an ungodly thought, right? That's not setting your mind on things above. And if you start looking on social media sites for an old flame just to see how they're doing, that's dangerous. And if you think Facebook is not being used to destroy marriages, you're naive. Did you know that 50, 50% of divorce filings this past year mentioned Facebook in them? Think about that. And so if you're filled with these thoughts, well, I wonder what my old flame is doing. Get off Facebook. It doesn't matter what they're doing. You're married. Right? I mean, there, there's no circumstance in which you should start looking for an old flame. You're a married person. You're committed to them in a covenant relationship before God. Turn off Facebook and go drink a cup of coffee with your spouse. Amen? We've got to limit our exposure. So God has warned us about these things that, that steal our focus away from Jesus. We need this defensive strategy. But if all you have is a defensive strategy, you're going to fall flat on your face. It's not just don't do these things. You need to be proactive about what you think about. You need to have an offensive strategy when it comes to setting your mind on things above. So God has given us some, some things to help us keep our focus on Jesus and his kingdom. What has God given us? What are the gifts God's given us to help us to keep our mind focused on things above? Number one, the Bible. Turn to Psalm 119 with me. Psalm 119, verse 15. Look what the psalmist writes. Psalm 119, verse 15. This is the longest chapter in the Bible. And it's all about the Word of God. I love Psalm 119. In verse 15, he writes, I will meditate on your precepts and fix my eyes on your ways. In other words, Psalm saying, I'm going to take your word seriously. I'm going to fix my eyes on what you say. I'm going to meditate on what you say. Your word is going to be a part of my life. Listen to me. As you make 
the Word of God an integral part of your life, it will lead your mind to think heavenly thoughts. It's so important that we get into the Word of God. So wait, how do I apply that? How should I interact with my Bible? Listen to me. Read it systematically and consistently. Now by systematically, I mean get a plan that will guide you to read through the entire Bible. All right? Entire Bible. So you're exposing yourself to the entire counsel of God. You say, well, I don't know what Bible plan to use. Well, go to Google and type in Bible reading plans, and there, there will be, be dozens that come up that you can use. I use the Discipleship Journal Bible reading plan. It has four different passages I read every day, and it leads me through the Bible in one year's time. And I love it. It's my third year of using the Disciple Journal Subject journal, Bible reading plan. Some people use the chronological Bible, that's fine. But have some sort of system in place so that you're exposing yourself to the entire counsel of God over a period of time. Now, you can take one of those plans and, and you know, use it over two years' time to give you time to really read through the Bible in an unhurried way. But whatever you do, make sure you have some sort of system in place to read all of God's Word. Because if you don't, you'll only read passages that you're familiar with, passages you understand, and you won't expose yourself to all that God says. got to be systematic. Secondly, you got to be consistent. Once you have that plan in place, do it daily. Read your Bible, and God will begin to use that in your life. And then after you read it systematically and consistently, meditate on what you read. Meditation is so important. It's when you read the Bible, and then you think about it. How many of you have ever read your Bible in the morning... And if you were asked at lunchtime what you read that morning, you couldn't tell them. Raise your hand. That ever happened to you? Am I the only one in here? Am I the only? All right. It happened. You know that, why that happens? We read. We don't meditate. We've got to meditate. It's, when I was a, a, a child, I remember going with my family to Washington, D.C. for a family vacation. I remember going to the Smithsonian Museum, and it, it was awesome, the different branches of that, of that museum. And, and museums are designed for you to meander through, right? You don't sprint through a museum. That'd be silly. You walk up to the display, you look, and you, you talk to somebody about it, and you read the plaque, and you say, oh, that's nice. You go to the next thing, and you kind of ease your way through the museum. That's how we ought to approach God's Word. We shouldn't sprint through the Word of God. Slow down. Read it and think about it. Think about what it said and the implications for your life. One of my favorite things to do is to read my Bible before I exercise. Now, I love to read my Bible, and then while I'm exercising, I'm, I'm meditating. On, it makes exercise go by quicker, and I'm, and I'm thinking about what I read, thinking about how it applies to my life. And so whatever works for you, do it, but make sure you're systematically, consistently reading through the Bible, and make sure you're meditating on what you read on a daily basis. That's the Bible. God has given us the Bible to fix our minds on things above. You can't read the Bible consistently without your mind being elevated to Jesus and his kingdom. Amen? Amen? Number two, God has given us the gift of prayer. Prayer is a great gift from God. Look in Psalm 123 with me. Psalm 123. Psalm 123, verse 1, the Bible says, To you I lift up my eyes, O you who are enthroned in the heavens. Behold, as the eyes of servants look to the hand of their master... 
As the eyes of a maidservant to the hand of her mistress, so our eyes look to the Lord our God till he has mercy upon us. So the psalm is saying, my eyes are fixed upon God. Now, what does it mean to have your eyes fixed upon God? Look at the next verse. Have mercy upon us, O Lord. Have mercy upon us, for we have had more than enough of contempt. You know what he's doing? He's praying. He brings his prayer request to God. God, help us in this situation. We need your help. So to, to have your mind fixed upon God, your eyes fixed upon God, is to pray. And God has given us the gift of prayer to, 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 to help us, to set our minds on things above. So here's how prayer ought to look in your day-to-day life. You ready? This is real fast, but it's, it's very practical. Set aside time to spend alone with God. Jesus said when you pray, go into your inner room and shut the door behind you. All right? So spend time daily alone with God. That's important. But also... We need to learn to practice conversational prayer throughout the day. Paul said that when you pray, you should pray without ceasing. 1 Thessalonians chapter 5. You ought to maintain an attitude of prayer and dependence upon the Lord. So, you know, you're in the car going to a meeting. Breathe a prayer. You're in between classes at school. Breathe a prayer of dependence upon God. You're leaving work. You're headed home. Breathe a prayer that God would help you to be present in your home and and be an influence in your home when you get home. But wherever you are in your day, just learn to talk to God throughout the day conversationally. If you're mad, tell Him you're mad. If you're scared, tell Him you're scared. If you need help, say, God, help! But talk to Him throughout the day. And as you talk to Him throughout the day, your mind is being fixed upon Him and His kingdom in a very practical way. Practice conversational prayer throughout the day. Jesus told us that's what prayer is all about. Prayer is all about fixing our mind on things above. Remember what Jesus said when he taught us how to pray in Matthew chapter 6? He said, when you pray, pray like this. Our Father who is in heaven, things above. Hallowed be your name. Your what? Kingdom come, things above. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven, things above. Prayer is all about setting your mind on things above. So understand that prayer is a gift and pray in your life consistently. Number three, here's the offensive strategy. There's the call to corporate worship. Look in Psalm 149 with me. Psalm 149. Psalm 149, verse 1. How many of you have ever heard someone say, well, I can worship God on the golf course, I can worship God on the deer stand, I heard that, you know, I can worship God on the lake, I can, you know, okay, I would say to that, amen. You should be able to worship God in your day-to-day living. If you're on a deer stand, a golf course, uh, a lake, then you should be able to worship God. I'm all for that, but that doesn't mean you shouldn't go to church and worship. Look what he says there in verse 1. Praise the Lord. Sing to the Lord a new song. His praise in the assembly of the godly. Isn't that interesting? His praise. So he's saying God is honored and glorified as his people get together. They assemble and they praise. Hebrews says don't forsake the assembling of yourselves together. We are called by God himself to gather together as a family of faith and praise his great name. And there is nothing like gathering together in corporate worship to set your mind, fix your mind on things above. I, I believe that, that Sunday worship is like hitting the spiritual reset button. Anybody have a tough time last week? Raise your hand. Life's hard, right? It's not easy. 
It's not easy. And the world and the flesh and the devil are constantly trying to pull our attention away from Jesus. But the first day of the week, I love how God established Lord's Day worship. First day of the week, first day of the week, we hit the reset button. It's I'm starting this week with my mind fixed upon Jesus. What a gift from God. What, what, a, what wisdom God has in gathering us together to focus upon him at the beginning of the week. The call to corporate worship. So Wade, how should, I, how should I approach worship? Let me give you three words very quickly. Number one, prepare. Prepare. I'm convinced that most families don't prepare for Sunday worship. And by prepare, I mean, you know, read a passage of scripture the night before, pray together as a family, go to bed at a reasonable time, lay out your clothes, you know, get breakfast food out ready to go so you're not scrambling on Sunday morning. How many of you ever have ever woken up, you're running late, you're running around yelling at each other, throwing your clothes on, you get in the car, you fight all the way to church, and you get out and you smile real big and say, glad to be at church today. We all do that, don't we? I mean, fight like cats and dogs. And we get in, we're shaking hands. Good to see you. What if we prepared? What if we asked God to prepare our hearts so that, listen to me, when we come to worship, we don't just come out of a sense of duty or obligation. We come to worship with expectancy. I'm going to church tomorrow, and I'm expecting God to do something in my life. I'm expecting God to do something in my spouse's life. I'm expecting God to do something in my kids. I'm expecting God to save some folks. I'm expecting God to transform some people. I'm expecting God to work. When you prepare, you will come to corporate worship with this, with this expectancy. And not just you know, showing up just to fill a seat. Prepare. Number two, attend. <laughs> I'm telling you, it's a real blessing to you and to your church for you just to show up. One, one thing about being a preacher, it is great to have folks to preach to. Amen? It, just really, it really encourages me when there's people out there to preach to. And just you being here means a lot to your brother and sister, means a lot to your pastor. And, and you come and you prepare and you attend, you show up. You, you, you make worship a, a consistent part of your life. Now, I know that... that that there are times you're on vacation. I think you ought to miss church uh, to go on vacation. I mean, church here. I, we try to attend worship when we go on vacation wherever we are. But I'm talking about here at Longview Point. Go on vacation. Do that. You need to get away. You need that time to, to get away or, or have some downtime. I, under, I understand all that. But if you're here and you're, and you're healthy, why would you want to be anywhere else? I mean, think about what we did this morning. We got together and we sang a song like this. Great is your faithfulness. Where else are you going to get that? To gather together and praise His name and study His Word and sit there with a brother and sister in Christ and, and pursue Jesus together. Pre attend, prepare, and then show up. It's getting rare, listen to me, to find families that can put three weeks together of worship. What's happening in our churches today, and, and, and pastors in this area will attest to this, is, is, is families, you know, they'll come one week, be gone two weeks, come two weeks, be gone three weeks, be gone one week. And it's, it's just really, it's really haphazard. 
And I, I just can't imagine having that kind of haphazard approach to worship and having my mind fixed upon God consistently. It'd be hard, wouldn't it? So attend. Be consistent. I mean, this is an appointment to come and worship the king. And then third, engage. When you get here, worship. <laughs> right? When you get here, engage. Sing the songs. Follow along in your Bible. Say amen if the Lord moves in your life. Amen? That was weak, all right. But engage. I mean, come and worship. Seek His face. Engage. Participate. Be a part of what's going on. And let me give you one more thing, one more part of our offensive strategy to keep our minds focused on things above. The Lord has given us the model of small group community. Small group community. How did Jesus change the world? He did not do it through mass evangelism. Now there were times where Jesus preached to the masses. But if you read the Gospels, those times are few and far between. As a matter of fact, we see times when Jesus sends the multitudes home. How did Jesus change the world? You know what he did? He gathered a small group of men. And he invested in them for three years to help them to grow and become who God had called them to be. So that when he was no longer physically present on the earth, those men were ready to take the gospel to the nations. And that's what happened. He invested in that small group, that community of men. That's how, listen, that's how Jesus made disciples. Now how arrogant would it be for me as a pastor to say, I've come up with a better way to make disciples. I've got this new strategy we need to implement. Why would we need a new strategy when Jesus has showed us what to do? The way Jesus made disciples was by gathering folks in small groups. They learn the Word of God together. They hold each other accountable. They encourage each other. They help each other. They minister to one another. They're there for one another. And in that context of community, they grow and mature in their faith in Christ. That's, listen, it's just what Jesus did. And, and Jesus gave us that model as an example for us to follow. And here's why it's important. We will never successfully maintain the right focus on our own. As a matter of fact, Proverbs 18.1 says that he who separates himself seeks his own desire. When you want to be over there by yourself doing your own thing, and you don't want other people involved in your life, it's because you're seeking to do your own thing. You don't want any accountability. You don't want any encouragement to do the right thing. You want to do what you want to do. So you've isolated yourself, and that's dangerous and destructive. We need to be around people who set their minds on Jesus. I don't have time this morning, but read Acts 2, 42-47. Uh, a group of people, small groups, they got together in the early church, and in those small groups in homes, they met together, and they loved Jesus together, and they encouraged each other to fix their mind on things above. When we get in a small group, here at Longview Point we call them connect groups. When you get in a connect group, you're around a group of people, you're learning God's Word together, you're talking about application, you're serving together, you're ministering to one another, and, 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 you're, and you're loving Jesus together. How many of you have ever been around somebody and their love for Jesus was contagious? Raise your hand. I mean, you're around them and they're awesome, and you think, man, I want to love Jesus like they do. Well, that's what small groups are all about. We get around some other folks, not perfect, but folks that really want to pursue Jesus. And as you're around those kind of folks, you're encouraged to, to, to pursue Jesus. That's how small group ministry works. 
And, and if you're not pursuing Jesus, if, if you're not fixing your mind on Jesus, you got some folks around you that care about you, that can hold you accountable and challenge you and say, hey, let's talk. Let's go get a cup of coffee. What's going on in your life? How can I help you? Let's, let's meet and read through Philippians together or something. Folks that really care and can, and can really help you to fix your mind on things above. Jesus has given us the model of small group community. I believe we will not be successful in fixing our mind upon things above absent from community. We need this. And so there it is, an offensive strategy. Get in your Bible, you pray, you come to worship, you get around small groups of folks that you can learn God's Word together with, minister with, be minister to. And in that context of community, you grow and you have the encouragement you need to fix your mind, to set your mind on things above. So listen to me. It's not possible to be so heavenly minded you're of no earthly good. I don't think anyone in this room is in danger of being too heavenly minded, your pastor included. Matter of fact, the danger goes the other direction. I'm in danger of letting the things of this earth influence me more than they ought to. How about you? So let's defensively and offensively dwell on the king in his kingdom. Let him fill up our minds. And if that happens, eventually it will show up in Christ-like living. Because a man thinks within himself, so he is.